this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. It's good to be with you today. We're going to begin our study in 1 John chapter 3. So I encourage you to grab a Bible, open it to 1 John chapter 3. If you use your smartphone or iPad, that's a great idea too. That's what I do. And as I pull up these verses, I encourage you to look at them with your own eyes and read God's Word along with me. I want to think about the Father's love for us this morning. And I want to begin with what John has to say in 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1, as he describes the love of God there, he makes a point here to demonstrate the depth of God's love for people and what he has offered them. So 1 John 3 and and verse 1 says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And this is a recurrent theme within the Gospel of John as well. Just take, for instance, what he says here in John chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, that Jesus came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I think that's an important text to read in light of 1 John 3, 1, because that helps us understand who the children of God are and how John is using that, that wording in 1 John 3. He's talking about people specifically, as he says in his gospel, who have received Jesus Christ, that is, who have believed on his name, as he says there in verses 11 and 12. So those who have obeyed his his gospel, who believe the good news about Jesus Christ and want to do something about it. And John says, for those people, they have this great privilege. Christians have this privilege of being the very children of God, that he's not afraid to claim us as his own if we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, that's another word that appears throughout the New Testament to describe God's people. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 1, Paul will speak of the church there and the members there as saints who called in Christ Jesus, who are sanctified by the blood of Christ. And so it's this new identity. That's the idea that we see in 1 John 3 and in passages like 1 Corinthians 1 and among many others. There's this new identity in Christ, for those who believe on His name, who obey His gospel, He become we, we become saints. People become saints. A holy people, Peter says, or a royal priesthood. So these are all different descriptors of God's people. And unfortunately, that identity can slip away over time. If Christians forget the good news, uh, then we can begin to think of ourselves as useless or unproductive or good for nothing and we just can't ever get anything right and so we kind of adopt this frame of mind that says you know we're just vile and base and we should never think anything of of ourselves that's true we need to be humble and it's true that we need to use our past in a constructive way 
we don't forget our sins in that any more than Paul did. You know that when our uh, our radio program begins, we look at First Timothy one and verse fifteen that Paul was clearly remembering what he had done in his past. Now that wasn't part of his identity anymore, and it wasn't. Uh, it didn't. He didn't dwell on the past to the point that it ruined him, or that he wasn't that, or that he saw himself as an unproductive and useless member of the kingdom. It's quite the opposite. And I want to think about some of those ideas with you this morning, how how the Scripture is reminding Christians how God really sees the people who have submitted to His will, who are obeying His gospel, who are striving to be good workers in His kingdom. What's the proper image that we should have of ourselves? Should it be that we just think think that we are slogging through life just with self-disappointment and we should never feel good enough? Uh, because we can never really be pleasing to God, is that the picture that the New Testament is painting of God's children of His of His people? There's a Scottish preacher by the name of Alexander White. I want to share something with you that he said. And this was a long time ago. He said, "Heartbeat after heartbeat, hour after hour, day and day, day in and day out, year after year, it's all full of sin. Nothing but sin from our mother's womb to our grave." Now. Alexander White was a Calvinist, obviously, and that is coming through in that in that quote that he has this very uh, vile and base uh, perspective of humanity, even of Christians, because of his subscription, his adherence to the doctrine of total depravity. That is, men and women are just totally corrupt. We can't do anything right. We're incapable, really, of doing good unless God animates us. So that's some of the doctrine and teaching tied up within Calvinism. And that may be what John Calvin thought, and that may be what Alexander White thought, but I don't believe that's biblical. I don't believe that's how God sees his people. And take, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So take another text here from the New Testament. This is Colossians 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And what I want to single out specifically, what I want to single out specifically at verse 2, again, we see this idea of saints, and that's something that you know, when we hear that and we read that in the text, we think, well, he's writing to all Christians, and we see that he's writing to all Christians in this city in Colossae where this church was. And uh, that's not how people use, first of all, that's not how people use that word saint today, right? Primarily, when you hear the word saint, I think people think of, well, somebody who's been quote-unquote canonized or they've um, achieved some sort of special status after their death somehow, and now, um, you know, posthumously we're going to recognize them for their amazing life and we're going to crown them with sainthood and, you know, bestow this honor. That's that's not how the Bible uses that word. That's not even that doesn't even come close to the concept concept of what a saint is in Scripture. Paul uses that word to describe all people, all Christians, are saints. I mean, I think about that for a moment. You know, because I, you know, maybe because of the influence of uh, other teachings, or or just because of how that word is popularly thought of, we might begin to think to ourselves. As a Christian, well, I'm not a I'm not a saint. I've done so many things wrong. I have if if people just knew what I did, there's no way that they would see me as a saint. But that's not what the scripture is saying. The scripture is saying, no, if you have 
been baptized into Christ and you are part of his kingdom, you are God's child, and those sins have been taken away and you are a saint. So you just need to quit trying to write sinner on your name tag and let God write saint on there because that's how the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to address these people. And the other thing he says here in verse 1 is faithful brethren. He says to the saints and faithful brethren. Now, think about that. Did Colossae, the church there, did they have their issues? Well, sure they did. You just take a peek into chapter 2 and we see this exhortation really a warning or admonition from Paul he's saying don't you be taken don't you be taken captive by empty philosophies and human teachings and and things like this because there were evidently evidently some teachers there as there were in, in many places in the ancient world just as there are today who were trying to bind specifically their issue was they wanted to bind circumcision and a number of other traditions from uh, and really commands from the uh, Torah from the from the old law and Paul is telling the Christians there, as he does in many other letters, don't subject yourself to that. Don't observe special days and think of one day as better than another. And, you know, there was some inclination toward asceticism. Maybe some people had bought into that philosophy that if you treat your body harshly, well, then that'll help you resist temptation more. And Paul says, no, at the end of verse, uh, excuse me, at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 through through 24. So my point is, is that Colossians, the, the Colossians there, they had their issues, but nevertheless, Paul calls them saints and their faithful brethren. They had some things they needed to work through and that they needed to grow out of and they needed to develop just as all Christians do. But Paul says, you're faithful brethren. You're faithful brethren. And so I think that should color our understanding a little bit here as to how God understands us or sees us and how we should see ourselves that we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, Paul says in Romans 6, 5 through 6, when he's talking about baptism there. He's saying that our old self was crucified with him. Now that old self and that old man is going to try and peek his head out every now and then. As James says, we stumble in many ways. Just because someone becomes a Christian doesn't mean that they're never going to sin again. But as we are trying, as we repent of those sins and, and follow the pattern of 1 John chapter 1, uh, that we confess our sins... Uh, to Jesus and repent of those things, he promises forgiveness to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we maintain this, our identity in him. We don't, uh, we don't become these vile and base and worthless people because we, we mess up. Now, sin is sin and it does separate from God and we need to take it seriously. But it doesn't make us worthless for any good thing. We can certainly regress to that point. And we see examples of that in, in Scripture. But there's no reason that a Christian who is joyfully and, and patiently striving to be productive in the kingdom of, of Christ and go about the work of Christ, to, to think of themselves as, as useless, unprofitable, and vile, totally depraved. That's just not there. It's not there in, in the Scripture. We are children of God. We're part of God's family, Paul says. Another, you know, another text we can take and pin to the board here is Ephesians chapter 2. Put your finger on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Look at what Paul says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
And so again, here's this uh, familial language, right? Well, also we see in, in verse 19 that we're fellow citizens of the same kingdom, of the same nation, if you will, a spiritual one with the saints. But Paul again says we're of God's household. That's, you know, that's a euphemism for God's family, all right, a household doesn't refer to in in the Bible as as a physical building, right? Uh, it refers to the family that's that dwells in in a house, the family unit. You know, just as Acts chapter ten speaks of Cornelius's household, that's talking about his family, and all of his family were baptized and believed in Christ. You know, not as not as that house, not his physical dwelling. So that's what Paul is saying. We're part of God's family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and the Bible uses that that terminology all the time. Some like 130 times, just in Paul's writings, he uses that. He speaks of brother so and so, or sister so and so, or we're brethren, or we are. God's household and things like this. So why don't we use that terminology more? Why don't we say brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so? Why don't we put those words in our mouths and see if it doesn't begin to sink in that we're, we're a family, that we are children of God, and we reflect that in the way we talk to each other, or we should reflect that in the way that we talk to one another and address one another. God loved us enough to make his his own children to offer his son as a sacrifice so that we could be brought into his household and be part of his family. That's not something we should take for granted. He loves us deeply and his son loves us deeply. Take a look at Philippians chapter two and, and see what it is that Jesus suffered in, in, in his willingness to be a sacrifice on our behalf. So just take a couple of, you know, I, w- I would encourage you to go back and read this text in its entirety. We're not going to do that this morning for the sake of time. But, you know, if he, Phil, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, if I said Ephesians, I meant Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, you know, that's a, a great text, but it speaks of the mindset of Christ. And again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to grab a couple of samples here. From verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And verse 7 says that he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a bondservant and a slave. So he relinquished his home for a time, the the glories of heaven and the riches and, and all the trappings of heaven to live and suffer and die as a man. And not just die, but but be brutally murdered on a cross so that he could save us. So he didn't cling to his divine prerogatives, but he was willing to lay aside all of that and take on humanity. And folks have argued in in the past over exactly what Jesus emptied himself of. But if you just look at the context, that we get the answer to that question. You know, the contrast between Lord in verse 11 and servant in verse 7, and the contrast between the form of God in verse 6, and again, human likeness in verse 7. Uh, those differences are expressing, I think, the emptying that Paul is talking about. The emptying is that Jesus became human, that the Lord became the servant, and 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 uh, the that God became a, a man and took on flesh, and His obedience to His Father took Him to the cross. Paul isn't saying that Jesus ceased to be God; that he ever that He stopped being God at any point. But he just laid aside the glories and riches of heaven. He subordinated himself to his Father as our perfect example, taking on human flesh. And he was at, 
again, one and the same time, fully God and, and fully man. So he had this self-sacrificing humility to put our interest above his own comfort, and we can't receive the benefits of his sacrifice and refuse to follow that example to and reflect his love in, in our own lives. That there's to be any blessing, there has to be some bleeding. Somebody once said, you know, there's a story of a, of a man who was in a foreign country and he was examining some different religious trinkets that he saw in a, in a kiosk. And there was a an ad, there was a sign which read cheap crosses. And he thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days. They're looking for cheap crosses. And my Lord's cross was not cheap, so why should mine be? His cross came at great expense to him, all for the benefit of us. And he saw his work through to completion. You know, one of the last things that he said on the cross was, it is finished. I remember having a conversation with a lady uh, one time about that phrase in John 19 and verse 30, where we see Jesus saying those words as he dies on the cross. Now, we were talking about that, and we were talking about uh, the Christian's obligation to obedience, and and she said that, and, and as that relates to salvation, and then she said that nothing can save you except the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's true, and in, in a sense, I, I agree with her completely. But her point was that she was making, as I understood it, was that um, there's nothing I can do to take advantage of Jesus's finished work. Uh, so was she right about that? And I want to think about that for a moment with you and, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. You know, Christ rendered complete obe- obedience. He was the complete atoning sacrifice that man needed to be saved from his sins. Uh, but uh, is that all there is to it? Is there is there really nothing I can do to take advantage of his complete obedience? And then having taken advantage of it, is there nothing more beyond that that I should and could do or that I'm called to do? So Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, this if you have many religious discussions, you'll know that Ephesians 2.8 is a battleground text. And in a heartbeat, many people will turn there to justify uh, their lack of obedience or uh, to say that we're, we're saved by faith alone and we have to extricate that text. I think out of false views of grace and faith. And sadly, you know, I want to read Ephesians. I read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 because sadly I think the glory of verse 10 is forgotten uh, because so many people want to dial in and single out verse verse 8, that God has redeemed us and forgiven us uh, absolutely, and that's by faith, which I think biblically speaking, faith is obedience to the gospel um, genuine belief in Scripture is always equated and manifests itself really with action and obedience. Um, but I think that, again, the, the power of verse 10 and the importance of verse 10 is sometimes forgotten about because we're so tangled up and balled up in discussions about faith and works and what is grace and you know things like this. And I, I, get, all, I get all of that. But just if you just want to think about verse 10 with me for a second, I think you're going to see that that good works are a part of God's plan for our lives after we take advantage of God's finished work that he accomplished in his his son that 
you know, verse 10 says that part of our identity is that we're, we're his workmanship. We've been created. We're this new creation in Jesus Christ. Absolutely, there it is again, just as it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But Paul says it's for good works that we have been created in Christ Jesus. That God has redeemed us and, and forgiven us and saved us and brought us into his family to be his children and to be saints and to be sanctified because there's important work for us to do. And that important work is to glorify him and, and show the world how good he is and how awesome he is and what he is willing to do in order to reconcile us back to him himself. And someone might say, well, well, yeah, okay, so there, there are good works for us to do. But you know, all of our, anything that we can do, all of our righteousness is just filthy rags. And all of our righteous deeds is just filthy rags. You might say, well, that's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? And it is. It's actually in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. So I'm going to read Isaiah 64. If you want to turn there with me, I think that's a good idea because we're going to look at some things in the context here. This is Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that some people will single out to say that and maybe in defense of a faith-only view that, well, yeah, if we do anything for God, if these good works that Paul is speaking of, well, it doesn't mean anything. They're just filthy rags. And it says, Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so there it is. That's the, that's the the verse that they're alluding to. But uh, just take a look at the context. We just back up one verse to verse 5. And the prophet says, You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved, Isaiah says. And so what's he talking about here? What's he talking about? He's talking about people who are in rebellion and who have been in rebellion for a long time. So this text is about sinners, right, who are hostile, who are being rebellious, who are putting on this outward show of, of righteousness to try and fool God. And that those righteous deeds, Isaiah says, they're like filthy rags. They're trying to conceal their, their heart, but they can't do that because God sees truly their heart and, and their good deeds that they're posturing with are just, they're meaningless. They're just filthy rags. So this text is not talking about Christians who are servants of God, who are joyfully participating in his kingdom and and trying to accomplish the work that he has given us to do. The New Testament gives us an entirely different perspective on how God sees those people. And someone might say, well, what about Luke 17? Let's go to the New Testament and look at Jesus' words in Luke 17. And they'll say, well, Jesus, Jesus is saying here that we're just unworthy servants, even if we do everything that God has commanded us. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Luke 17 and verse 10. But if you look at the context there, again, what is Jesus talking about? This is Luke 17, Luke 17 and verse uh, 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to do. And you back up a, a couple of verses here. Just look at the, the scenario that Jesus is, is giving. He says, you know, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep, in verse 7, will say to him, when he's coming from, from the field, come and immediately sit down to eat. But we not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And then afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave 
because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We've only, we've only done that which we ought to have done. And so Jesus is saying in the text that you can't put God in your, your debt. Jesus is addressing the idea, uh, certainly of being an unworthy servant, but his emphasis is not that God doesn't care about what we do. And, it, and he's not saying that God denigrates the labor of his people as meaningless and useless or as filthy rags. What Jesus is talking about is that you can't earn salvation or put God in your debt. You can't fake God out. That's Isaiah 64. And you can't earn salvation. That's Luke 17. But none of that means that God doesn't value the work his people do. There are people all throughout the Bible, examples for us who loved and served God, and God approved of them and delighted in them. And Noah, for example, was called a righteous man, the only one in his generation. Abraham is called a friend of God. The lady who anointed Jesus' feet in, in the Gospel of Mark, Scripture says she will be remembered always for the good that she did. Matthew 10, 42, the Master says, Jesus says, that whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name surely will not lose his reward. What is, that, what is all that telling us? What is all that telling us? How can we come to the conclusion that the one who says, even, even if you give a cup of water in my name. That's significant. How can we come to the conclusion that what we do doesn't matter or that what we do is just filthy rags? Oh, again, God loves his people and he loves the work that they they do. Hebrews 6.10 says he's not so unjust as to forget the love that you've shown toward his name. And he's a God who wants to tell all people, Matthew chapter 7, he wants to tell all people, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, the, the list of names could go on. I mentioned Noah and Abraham, but there's, there's many names that we could draw out of Scripture and we could see their example and their deeds, which are recorded for us to see because what they did mattered. God loved them for it. As part of who we are, His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We should embrace that, not try to mitigate it in any way. Now, let me quickly add, so that you don't misunderstand me, that we don't have anything to boast about. You know, Paul said, where then is boasting? It is excluded, Romans 3.27. Every Jew had failed to justify themselves by obeying the law, and you and I have failed to justify ourselves. It's beyond our power to do that. No matter how long we live, no matter who our parents were, how much money we make, how much education we have, how much authority we have, how moral we are, or our families may be, we're still guilty and sinful before God. We all need the blood of Christ in order to be forgiven, in order to stand before Him holy and blameless in the day of judgment. We have, really have no reason to boast except one. Paul mentions in Galatians 6.14. 6, and our reason for boasting is Jesus Christ and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. Those, those are worthy of boasting in because of the love he demonstrated in his suffering, his holiness, his perfect character, the honor and reverence he rendered toward God, and the fact that he did this to save sinful, pe sinful people. And none of our wealth or strength or education or beauty could have accomplished what he did for us. That's why we should boast in the cross of Christ and him alone. 
wealth and strength and learning, all those things eventually leave us, and none of them can accomplish for us what Jesus did. So, And to begin with, those are all gifts from God. What we should see as a high honor, what we should see as worthy of boasting in, is the fact that we are saved by the very one who made the world. And he is not ashamed to call us his children. He's not ashamed to own us and claim us, to give us the gospel and entrust us with the most important work ever given, the most important mission ever given, to make disciples of all men. So I want to end with a question this morning. Are you... Are you part of God's household? Are you part of his family? Are you a child of God? Have you obeyed the gospel of Christ? That's what we saw at the very beginning of our study, in John chapter 1, that as many as received Jesus Christ, who believed on his name, to them he gave the right, the privilege to be called children of God. Jesus said in John eight twenty four, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And we see that in Acts 2.38, when Peter was preaching to those people who had, some of whom had crucified Jesus and were there on the day that he was killed, Peter told them, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we see that pattern playing out over and over again throughout the book of Acts. People hearing the gospel of Christ and being baptized in his name for the forgiveness of sins. Is that what you need to do? If it is, you can contact us at Leon Valley Church, either by visiting our website at leonvalleychurch.org where you can find our phone number, or through the website, there's a contact form where you can email us. But I hope you see how deep the Father loves you and I, and how much He loves His children, how much He values them and their work. And it is a glorious work with a glorious hope. So I hope that you'll make the decision to be part of God's family, be forgiven of your sins, and come to Him in humility and obedience. I'm Jason Garcia, a member of the Leon Valley Church of Christ, and this has been Faithful Sayings.